Brian Tyne describes, a shot that introduces the piano melody that will come back and forth for the duration of the film. HD images of the piano performance reveal the source of the melody. We see, we see Christina at the piano. Soon, Pavel enters the frame. Her body movements express her improvising interaction with the music and with the camera. A fade into widescreen introduces images with a different texture and color palette, tilting super eight outside. We accompany Pavel's perambulations on a stone-covered embankment. Her colorful clothes contrast with the gray stone. The sound of her heavy steps stress the friction between the actress's soul body and the inhospitable surroundings. Soon, the sound of the piano is heard again, re-establishing, although in extra-diagetic terms, the interaction between the movements of the actress and of the piano. The latter will no longer appear. Throughout the film, the soundtrack, Christina's melody, alternates with background noise, sound of war, and references to depicting it. The soundtrack reinforces the fragmented panorama revealed by the images. In addition, sometimes the soundtrack added in post-production interacts <coughs> with the actress's body movements. In her perambulations through this empty landscape, Fadel scrutinizes abandoned buildings and to ruins. The camera sometimes leaves the protagonist to linger on details of the devastated section. Tension increases when the visual research reveals walls riddled with bullet holes, destroyed buildings, broken down cafes. In a devastated lot, Fadel struggles against the extra diegetic sonorous pressure coming from sirens, bombs, machine guns. Fragments of a gypsy lament increase the tension even more. The post-apocalyptic setting alludes to war, but with no further sophistication and final stage, thus suiting the fable-like tone constructed for, for the feature film. Towards the end, the film suddenly becomes less abstract. Fadel gets close to an English graffiti inscription, but the war. The documentary description adds the, an anti-war explicit utterance that contrasts with the visual tone of the rest of the film. Final credits bring geographic references. The cast credit informs us that the film was shot in Moscow, in Bosnia, where pianist Janela Cristina was born and raised. Giuseppe Fadel is a Brazilian actress and met Anela in the same city. The credit also informs viewers that the original music for the soundtrack was composed by Anela Cristina. The date of their encounter is not specified. The film produced 10 years ago in 2009. Rough Stone makes connections between unlikely landscapes, people, and cultures, and absorbs elements that emerge from the search circuit and provoke in its tragic art. Rothstone differs from sensational media coverage of the war that followed the disintegration of Yugoslavia, in itself the subject of multiple studies and publications. The film does not attempt to explain or to make sense of the horror. The 
Jones was right, little wrinkles or mosses that made the world character shine. The film does not show images, for example, of the old bridge, a 16th century Gothic monument that used the coastal part of the city, known for its multicultural population close to the Mediterranean, that is the section between West, between the West and the East. Even though the film avoids the documentary zone, documentary includes is embedded in the process as the site of destruction is the site of the fortuitous encounter between two Brazilian on the road, women artists, an actress and a filmmaker, and a Bosnian woman musician. Anela shared with Julia and Giorgetti her memories about surviving the war by playing pianos that survived the bombing in Oscar's version. The film, result, the film results from the collaboration between the two women on the site and in itself suggests the possibility of living together to coast over time. Rough Stone surpasses elements of the essay film, the unplanned, almost accidental nature, nature of the short realized more on an impulse as part of a larger fiction project in which documentary insisted to intrude suggests the poetic potential of experimental work in the liminal zone between fiction and fact. With some contemporary discussions about redefining notions of center and periphery in relation to film production and circulation, this short and the larger project to which it belongs assumes this ongoing tendency in other forms of artistic expression to imagine worlds beyond nation and language the ways in which the nonfiction penetrates the, texture, the texture of this poetic treatment about getting to know bondage landscapes, I hope inspires our own short Bosnian approaches. Rough Stone expresses the provisional tone of a process that incorporates encounter. It is imperfect and inconclusive, but sensitive and innovative. The film and the project process in which it is inserted extends an invitation for viewers to rethink categories. The poetic appeal of the film has to do with the risks it takes. Without a complete cinematic apparatus, the very proposal of treating Bosnia as part of the project of a first feature film by a young Brazilian woman filmmaker could drown. Unpredictable as the improvised body performance the film depends on a series of unstructured encounters. The beauty of the film relies in the sensitive manner it invents to register the encounter among three women and three forms of artistic expression, performance, music, and singing. The irregular, inconclusive tone invites a different type of production and criticism, one that might also be done along the way. Currently, Julia is reviewing the material she shot during her stay in the Balkans 10 years ago. And I hope she's able to show something in Brazil for those of you who come to Sao Paulo to see her here. I hope her short film inspires your own account about our summer meetings in Balkans. In the past few years, um, we, uh, we have encountered something very strange. Um, many of us who had thought we were settled comfortably in the role of academics in India within JNU 
within the academic circumstances that you continue to teach and research around theater and dance performance studies, etc. Suddenly we woke up to this thing where academics is in itself in, in a, a deep crisis and you have to protest in order to be able to teach or research. So you, know, you have to be present, you have to put your body into the place of protest and you have to actually be in a very precarious place as a, perform as a person who you know, is able to stand between what is being planned for the university and the administration, a very hostile administration in fact. Increasingly over the years, there are many people who have also wanted to take up research on this. And we've had to cope with not only just, you know, academically teaching um, courses on embodiment as resistance that we, I used to teach in dance studies, but I have had to move into research areas with new researches, with new kinds of research problems that were generated by people, including shows of nationalism in football and cricket matches where one you know, slaps one's chest 10 times and sings the national anthem in a particular manner, or does haka, kaba haka in a particular manner. So, um, uh, although as a matter of commitment, I work with vulnerable population of young adults receiving psychosocial and medical attention for PTSD, activism is not what we do in the university normally. But as a lot of artists started creating work around social justice and turned into activists all around us, in the recent time of crisis, we needed to be there to aid their work also, to aid the kind of research that was coming out of such situations. Embodied resistance has been an important part of performance research, but resistance became a lived reality and part of our everyday when water jets filled with filthiest of stinking sticky water, and in that uh, procession many of us were there, uh, were aimed at us during a peaceful protest march. One had to think then why our bodies walking silently together, peacefully, could be received with such violence. What is threatening in such embodied presences that invite violent retaliation? And also, it also gave shape to our need and strategy to occupy the academic block of the university through different performative protests. So I'm talking about two kinds of stuff that were being generated within our lives at the same time as, uh, as we lived through that particular time and are living through that particular time. So somewhere I started to rethink um, now, in that, the first thing that comes out is the lack of democracy in body culture, in all cultures, in all sorts. There may be different sets of principles, but there are severe self-surveillance methods, value judgments in all society, how you see the perfect body, what is a female body, what is the way to sit. I have been told in childhood that you should not sit with your thighs apart. You have to sit with your legs together, while the male child in the family would never be told that. So those are cultures of severe 
surveillance and you actually exist in a self-surveillance mode all your life. Uh, the world of scholarship has a long history of almost disembodied thoughts acting as those scholars of pure minds engaging with each other in bodiless worlds. Only recently are we confronted, confronting the body, its limitations, its lived experience, its consequences, and turning our attention to how people step in and out of their experience to confront the body and confront with the body. Uh, this talk focuses on not just the body, but the body as a site of resistance and puts forth some ways that people, sometimes in anger, sometimes in play, sometimes in community and sometimes all alone, make use of the body as a way of expressing themselves. So I'm going to talk through these two small videos. I'm not going to show the full video. I've, I've shared them. Uh, but I, this is about the work of one particular woman who is a trained classical dancer from India. But over the years, she became first a street theater artist working on issues of dowry and burning of brides for bride price, uh, sorry, dowry. And the other thing was she has also become known for her quite radical stand in feminism, feminist issues. So, um, so Maya, uh, Maya Krishna Rao um, actually suddenly responded to the JU students plea to come and perform in protest but, uh, after there was a rape, a gang rape, a previous uh, situation of gang rape happened and this woman, this young woman lay dying and suffering in the hospital for quite a while, for almost 15 days after that rape. Um, so I would like to show this video at home. to the word spoke embodied resistance, um, they say that circumcision, childhood vaccination, preschool beauty pageants, steroids and sports, designer vaginas, hair straightening, drag queens and kings, burkas, eyelid, eyelid surgery, sexual dysfunction, end of life care, these are things that generate a lot of lively discussion in classes around bodies. And since nearly everyone has a passionate opinion, knows someone who or both, those uh, topics inspire dynamic discussions and spirited disagreement. But despite the widely varying views expressed about the body, the people tend to agree on the point. When it comes to the body, there is tremendous pressure to play by the rules. And so therefore, in academia, I have seen that people actually stay away with a body is a kind of dangerous place. Body is not to be compromised. Body is not to be placed along with one's research. So one puts body away from everything that they do. After all, the, uh, after all, the empirical evidence is compelling that bodies and the people who inhabit them are vulnerable to social norms of looking and behaving. There is no sort shortage of rules dictating what we should or should not wear, inhale or ingest, the size, shape, and overall appearance of our bodies, and even our gestures, gait, and posture. 
and it also seems to be a kind of a more a, a more of a problem with women rather than the male population. The males are supposed to be not bothered. Females are born to know how to be all the time. They need to know. If they don't, they need to know as soon as possible. Um, so, um, along with many other artists and scholars, I have been forced to think of art as a strategy and more of a need, more of a compulsion almost, encouraging, facilitating, and developing self-reflexive artistic material with participants such as people identified for many reasons as the other. And this could include university students under attack from a hostile administration because that's my daily life. Youth at risk due to trafficking because that's my passion, I've worked for a very long time. Riot victims and survivors who have been part of our lives in many ma manners constantly. Religious minorities, refugees or immigrant communities, those might marginalized due to gender, ability, age, and in fact, any displaced or dislocated individuals. So we have these people all around. We have been thinking, working through them, and we have been, uh, we have been investing in many of the bodily activities in terms of recovery processes, surviving processes of self and the others. It is here that the body can be a very significant tool for communication and it gives us ways to explore ways of approaching materials that one would like or like to or have to engage with. Now, um, in a manner when, uh, when a performance or a film such as what Esther shows, shows us is that um, it is not really you know, one of the questions that have come up over and over again, is any material all over the world your own material? Where is the ethic of using that material? How do you even use it if it is, you know, giving you a kind of passion to engage with it? And I uh, would suggest that uh, it's, you know, the, the, over the years, uh, we have been working on creating tools to encourage people to tell their own stories. Along the way, I've encountered people whose place of origin is no longer accessible to them because of political, social, economic, religion, and other barriers, whose religious or linguistic or racial or class or caste or gender identifications almost compel them to anticipate for uh, for the world around them to react or retaliate, not to anything that they have actually done, but to who they are. Um, art, I suggest, is a tool for configuration and consolidation of ideas, communication of images and thoughts, and the healer in many cases of trauma. Further narratives that em emanate from personal experience when shared with wider public can strengthen one's own conviction 
and reach out to tell the story to others who have not known the story. If it also encourages others to try to do the same. For this, one would not have to claim a direct link or involvement to the tools of cultural trauma that finds a cultural expression, but instead can explore possibilities of becoming sometimes vulnerable co-experiencer. One does not claim a direct link to experience of trauma, but may see himself or herself as a witness, in some cases as an ally to survivors of upheaval, of ruthlessness, of resettling, and the recalibrating that comes with adapting to living in or having survived conditions of trauma. Now, this actually means that, um, so if I could show the video, some of you may have seen, I think, and I, uh, the video actually shows this woman, um, she calls it walk, and she is in a public space. There's a variety of audience, not necessarily deeply or in the same manner invested in the sadness of the situation of a young girl, young woman, working woman, uh, returning home at 11 o'clock in the night with her friend, a male friend, and being in the bus with four or five helpers of the bus driver while the bus was empty as it was late night, and then being raped and then thrown out on the roadside and having grievous in, uh, injuries throughout her body and she dies on the 30th of, uh, of, of December finally in uh, 2012 and Maya was asked to perform in our, uh, our campus and she comes not prepared to face this thing and she actually talks through the performance and she only urges people to walk, to walk with her, to, to choose who she, that those people walk with, to walk so much that they claim the spaces, the safe spaces, in the middle of the night. So she says that I want to walk. I would like to walk at four o'clock in the morning. I would like to lie down in the park at 12 o'clock in the night. And I want this city to be mine and safe. And don't talk to him, talk to me. I will walk with you. Don't walk with him, walk with me. And the things of saying that, I know when to say no. I know about consent. I know when to say no. And this performance, I mean, it's almost <coughs> like, and she says in the interview that I intended to show you, that, uh, you know, it no longer is a performance. It is survival. It's something that I have to do. It became an urge to do this over and over again. What I wanted to say in this regard also is that walk developed into a continuous performance. It's not that December performance that was the final one, but it was the first one of a series that she has done against, uh, you know, the delegitimization of uh, uh, this whole um, gay relationships in Delhi, in by law in India, by a law which is called 377, which were, and, and then later on, she walked in JNU, 
to talk about this, this whole right-wing policies of pressurizing the students into some disciplined beings of non-existence. So this, she has carried on walking, and walking has become this tool which has developed into a kind of a, uh, uh, and, and with the voice that she writes as per a situation every time, and it actually has become a very, very powerful kind of tool of protest. So what I wanted to suggest was to, to further what Esther was suggesting, that when you go to, to these, even, even your experience through this whole, um, the whole, whole summer school, or when you go to, to Bosnia, when you make four, uh, we, we suggest that you make four groups, and we would suggest the names of people who would be grouped together. So, and we would like you to work on images or with or without your own bodies in them. So you could put bodies in front of the camera or behind the camera. You could put bodies in, in, uh, in performance. You could use videos plus bodies. You could, you're free to choose your way of expression. It ha if you don't want to be in front of the camera, if you don't want to be seen, it's also fine. But choose your way of engaging with material, if, if possible, in a more kind of embodied sense, in a more kind of audiovisual sense, in more kind, kind of imagining the presence in more nuanced and different manners. And uh, so I would also like you to see this, uh, this particular site that I have highlighted there. It's, I probably, some of you know this, this is work of Iku and Koma. Um, this is a, So if you could, um, I could give you the link. You could see this. This is a work of uh, a woman who is uh, a, a couple who is working with camera and bodies, and they are working, in, you know, in a kind of um, in a space that is Fukushima in Japan, which had triple tragedies actually of a um, huge earthquake, a flood and a nuclear disaster in the same place, one after the other. And she has created this whole photo exhibition and video of the body in place. She calls it body in Fukushima. And she has done it from 2011 to last was 2017. And she has done these whole series of films where she shows how the body can actually talk to the space in different manners. If you would like, please go through this video. I can do that. Yeah, I could. Thank you. 
So I want to show you a few photographs. Okay, so the body in Fukushima, as you see, a series of photographs is a collaborative work between Nico and the Japanese historian and photographer William Johnston. Um, Nico and Johnston met in 2005, and then they have worked in 2011, from 2011 to 2014, and then last was 2017. So I just would like you to see. So this is in 2000. This is in 2014 when the plan. In 2014, you see um, uh, this whole land which is being again recovered, and he actually she actually shows these uh, images in, uh, yeah. So the houses that are still in broken order, and she's filming herself in those places in a manner of, um, you know, lament. So there are many houses which she describes, and the project actually has a written component where she talks about how remnants have changed over the years. So in 2011, it was this dusty remains where chairs were there as if people were just left, hadn't had time to claim things. And then they, uh, after that, in 2014, a very fat, a great patch up job of cleaning up and creating a new place, though nobody lives there. And 2017, this whole place is rebuilt to claim something else and erase the past. And she actually talks about how that, that whole space keeps on talking about the past. And uh, I, I just wanted to kind of Try the last bit of this video once again, which Megna has helped me in recovering. I think. Where is it, Megna? Here, by the set default device, try to change it.
Thank you very much for your time and invitation.